Good morning, friends. Good to have you here today. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark, as you know, for the past couple of years, and I don't know if you've noticed or not, but um, Mark, along with the other Gospel writers, is attempting to convince us, convince all readers, of the great value of Jesus Christ. He's a valuable asset to us, isn't he? And even significantly more. It feels sacrilegious to say that, asset, and yet he's writing, Mark is writing, all the New Testament authors are writing to fallen sinners who decide on the value of things based on what good it will do them. Hence, asset. But Mark has presented Jesus as the God of the universe who is Lord, really, over any and all chaos. The original audience that read Mark's gospel were in Rome under the tyrannical rule of Nero, that crazy and ruthless emperor who was killing Christians left and right, if you remember. Their lives in Rome at the time were full of chaos. It turns out that also we experience chaos from time to time. Since we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, how's the chaos been in our world? Significant, hasn't it? Isn't our world significantly different than it was two years ago? Yeah. Chaos has reigned supreme in our experience over the past two years. We've made our way through Mark chapter 12 now, um, but I'm going to skip Mark chapter 13 because it's not important. Actually, I knew I'd get your attention. Everybody goes. <laughs> Let me explain. We're going we're to skip over chapter 13 for now, jump to chapter 14, and with bullet train types of speed make our way to Holy Week in time for the Resurrection Sunday and Mark 16. I want to get there on Easter Sunday, all right? I want to get to that Mark 16 chapter. Uh, so during our next six weeks, we're going to move quickly and not too deeply, uh, kind of like a flat rock skipping over the top of water through these chapters, hitting the historical and theological high points so we can appreciate the suffering of Jesus Christ and his passion and his humiliation during this week of Passover. It's going to take a, a quick run through these next six weeks to get to chapter 16, but I think, Lord willing, we can do that. I think, and one of my motives here is, is uh, there's something important and special, I, I believe, in working through the Passion of Christ text in conjunction with the Lent time of year, which we're in. And so I, I hope that and my prayer has been that this approach will make this time of year take on a, a deeper significance for you in the Gospel of Mark, and that the Gospel of Mark will actually become more and more alive to you, um, simply because we're in that time of year, and it's, it's a, good, a good thing to do. After Resurrection Sunday, we'll return to Mark 14 and move much more slowly so we can look in, in the detail um, at the theology of the cross. So we're going to get off this expositional bullet train uh, after Easter and, and walk slowly beside the, the bubbling brook of Mark's detail um, so that we can see and appreciate more deeply the meaningful realities of Christ during this Passion Week. 
the, really the theology of God's suffering. Um, that, that is just all over these pages. Um, and so that's what I want to do. After all this, so we're going to go through Mark 14 through 16 twice, once very fast, once more slowly. Um, and then we're going to return to Mark 13 and look at Jesus' eschatology, which is his teaching of the end times. All this before January of next year. That's my goal. We'll see. But, um, and then that will conclude our study of Mark. So I'm excited about um, all of what I've just said, and i am never been on a bullet train, but um, I, I'm, I'm assuming it'll be kind of like whiplash. So prepare yourselves. What you just heard read, I'm gonna cover all in one sermon. All right, and none of you believe that, but uh, it is true. 42 verses, which is why we're gonna have to return <laughs> to this place and uh, pick it up again because there's so much I can't say today about these verses. So let's look here at these verses. Mark chapter 14, verses one through 42. And the, if you have an outline, um, in your bulletin, it would, it would benefit you to follow along just because of the pace at which we're going, all right? So uh, what I want you to see first here as we consider Mark's teaching is the contrasting responses to Jesus. Keep in mind what the objective is of the Gospel of Mark. It's to introduce us to and convince us of the value of Jesus Christ, all right? That's, that's what we're after here. That's what Mark's after. And so he has laid out all, the, all the, the proofs of Jesus' true identity up through chapter 12. And now he's going to let us see how different people respond to all of this, respond to this person. All right? The first here, we see the contrasting responses to Jesus found in verses 1 through 11. There are many different responses to Jesus recorded in the Gospels that we see. Um, we've seen already in Mark's Gospel many different responses. But the Gospel writers were careful to record all the responses to Jesus so that we could examine our own response to him. Remember, these words were written for us. Responding to Jesus continues today, right? This is why you're here. You've responded to Jesus in such a way that draws you to this place. Others aren't here. Responding to Jesus continues today. People are confronted by the presentation of Jesus Christ and they decide how they're gonna to respond to him. And Mark's gonna give us three of the more common ways that people respond to Jesus, both then in his day and now in our day, all right? The first thing we see is in verses one and two and what that response is, hatred. It's hatred is the first response to Jesus by the religious leaders. They weren't close to Jesus. They didn't really know him all that well. They just hated what he stood for. Um, and this hatred came amazingly from within the God-ordained religious system. This is stunning. The, the Passover, which is described here, now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast, is the primary feast that pictured the work of Christ most clearly. Of all the feasts that the Jewish people celebrated, the Passover 
most clearly presented Christ. And it's in this context where the hatred of Jesus is displayed most clearly. The Passover lamb, for example, you're familiar with this if you know much about the Old Testament. The Passover lamb was slaughtered. Blood was spilt, body was broken of this lamb, and then the Passover lamb was eaten. Originally, that lamb was to be a spotless yearling brought into Jewish homes, actually into their home, to live with the cat and the family um, for a period of days so that the family could fall in love with this cute little animal, puffy white animal. I'm sure that the children of these homes would nickname each of these lambs, only to have that lamb executed in front of them on Passover day. And we have a hard, take, hard time taking our animals to the shelter. How would you like it if dad came in one day and said, hey, we're, we're, we're done with Fluffy, you know. This is what was happening, right? <laughs> hey, um, kids, bring in Whitey. We're gonna eat him. Mary had a little lamb that she slaughtered and ate. That's not in the rhyme, is it? No. But his fleece was white as snow. So Jesus came into the world as the Lamb of God. He was introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, and the people in general fell in love with him because of the good things he was doing. All spoke well of him, the Bible says. They loved the fact that he cured their diseases, that he fed them. They fell in love with the lamb. But of course, here during the Passover week, they turned on him because of the religious leaders and executed Jesus on the very same day that all the other Passover lambs were executed. At the very same day, the very same time, Jesus died with the hundreds of thousands of lambs that had been brought into Jerusalem for this very purpose. When we revisit the passages that are in front of us, I'm going to dive into the Passover celebration a bit more deeply and show you the great pictures of Christ found within this celebration, and they're stunning. I hope you're here. But next we see that this hatred not only began within the religious system, it was led by the religious leaders, the hatred of Christ. The leaders of God's people are the ones who hated Jesus the most, who hated the Messiah, the Lamb of God the most. The very leaders who were supposed to lead the people during the Feast of the Passover, which was given by God to picture the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Savior, were the very ones who were actually using their hatred against him. <laughs> Irony to fulfill what God had prepared. Their hatred actually fulfilled the purposes of God. So the very ones who should have been leading the people to Jesus were actively leading people away from Jesus. Jesus called them blind guides, remember? But they were being used by God to draw all men to himself. Their hatred actually was an assist to Jesus being able to draw all men to himself after he had been lifted up on the cross. I think it's stunning irony. And then we see that this hatred in verse 2 was accompanied by cowardice. 
They were sneaking around in the dark, in the shadows, not wanting to be known, not wanting to be discovered. I think people already knew that this group of leaders hated Jesus, but they didn't want, you know, to have to acknowledge that publicly because, you remember, the people had fallen in love with the lamb. And so, in their cowardice, they did it in the cover of night with the assistance of Judas, who's also on the table today. They said, not during the feast. <laughs> they, all of Israel was there. A good majority of them knew Jesus and had seen his miracles and had believed that this could possibly be the Messiah. And so they said, not during the feast. Let's do it when nobody's looking. These leaders knew in their hearts that Jesus was checking off all the boxes of the promised Messiah, but because of their pride and cowardice, they couldn't humble themselves to receive and worship him. It seems that those who hate Jesus the most are usually the ones who have the most privilege, isn't it? Isn't that stunning to you? Those who have never heard much about Christ are quickly receptive of him. It's those who have been raised hearing of Christ that are critical and tend towards hatred of him. These who have been most privileged seem to have the most exposure to God and to Scripture. They have the most education, the most blessing. Their, their privilege actually, it seems, inoculates them from the truth. Pride keeps people from acknowledging the true identity of Christ. So the, the first response that Mark wants us to consider is hatred. Some people flat out hate Jesus to the point of wanting to kill him. Next, I want you to jump down to verse 10. And I want you to see the response of Judas. This is someone who was close to Jesus, who walked with Jesus day and night for three years. He knew Jesus. But we can say he actually didn't truly know Jesus, right? <laughs> Judas Iscariot's response to Jesus is also telling. Um, and another way that, that people can respond to Jesus. He was one of the 12. He was in the inner circle. But did he know Jesus? The Apostle John said that Judas was hanging around Jesus because of financial gain that he was getting, deceptively. Judas used to help himself to the money bag that was kept for the expenses of the twelve. It's never a good idea to put a dishonest person in charge of the money bag. So what set Judas off? Why, why did he go off the rails like we know that he did? And we know that he was the only one of the disciples that wasn't from Galilee. He was from a small town south of Jerusalem. In the verses just before verse 10, though, we see that Judas thought that Mary had wasted all that expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. It could have been sold, we learn, and the proceeds given to the poor. Of course, we know that Judas wasn't interested in the poor. He was interested in Judas. This windfall of income, some estimate in our day around forty to $45,000 worth. 
Could have been in Judas's pocket, or at least a portion of it. Yeah, but Judas said, we could have given it to the poor. This upset Judas, it seems. And I think a, a few weeks back, we also saw that Judas was growing discontent and frustrated with Jesus. According to Matthew 26, 15, the agreed upon price between Judas and these religious leaders was 30 pieces of silver. We'll dive into that also the next time through this text. That's significant, by the way, the 30 pieces of silver. Remember Joseph, all right? That's all I'm gonna say. But what we learn later in this narrative is that Satan entered Judas and incited Judas to betray Jesus. Satan used a hypocritical false believer to have Jesus arrested. Ironically, again, by inciting Judas to betray Jesus, Satan brought about his own demise, didn't he? Jesus had planned to go to the cross. <laughs> it wasn't a mistake or an unfortunate turn of events. It was a God-ordained plan. And so Satan actually brought about his own complete defeat at Calvary and on Resurrection Sunday. And today we can see the same kind of response from people towards Jesus. First, hatred, now betrayal. They can be in church. They can maybe even grown up in the church, have all the privileges that, that church people have in regard to Christ, but then become delusioned at some point or another, either by the church or people in the church, and walk away from Christ, pointing at someone who had mistreated them. And of course, by their departure, they confirm the same thing that we see in Judas's departure, inauthentic faith. And then we come to the next way that Mark reveals that we can respond to Jesus. And it's found in verses three through nine. Worship. You can either hate Jesus, betray Jesus, or worship Jesus like Mary. A true child of God we see here. Let me read these verses for you. And while he was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came. We know it was Mary because it says so in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 3. But Mark doesn't name her. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask, poured it over Jesus' head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, and here's Judas, unnamed but named in John and Luke. These guys said indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, that's $40,000 in our day, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. <laughs> yeah, so we see that Mary here was trying to do a loving act, an act of worship, really, and was being scolded by some misfit disciples. This Mary, of course, as you remember, was a sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. This particular event of Mary, verses 3 through 9, Mary pouring oil on Jesus actually took place six days prior. Mark pulled it out of that old, that old narrative so that we could see the contrast between the religious leaders, between Judas and Mary. 
Mark wants you to see there's, there's a choice we have to make here in how we respond to Christ. Are you going to respond with hatred, like the religious leaders, with betrayal, like Judas, or with worship, like Mary? What's your call going to be? Mark getting to that point in the gospel, he's running out of time, he needs you to respond. What's it going to be? Mary's act of amazing and sacrificial love has been remembered since the day she did it. Jesus said that this would be the case. Her response to Jesus is a stark contrast to the other two responses, isn't it? She was honoring, she was worshiping the Lord. She had seen Jesus do amazing miracles. She had been personally saved by Jesus and seen Jesus save her family, her, brother, her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. She deeply loved Jesus as Savior and Lord at this point when she wasted $40,000. But it was an amazing act of sacrificial love and worship. But it was met with criticism. Look at verses 4 and 5. They're, these guys were complaining. Hey, why are you wasting this? We could have used it to help people. Secondly, in verse 6, not only was, she, was this act of Mary's worship met with criticism, but it was defended by Jesus. Look at verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. <laughs> Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. It wasn't a waste, evidently, in Jesus' mind. This indicates that what she did was right and good. Jesus was pleased with what she had done with her act of worship. Why? Why was he pleased? Didn't Jesus care about poor people? You can see what Jesus says. And again, we'll dig into this more deeply later. But why was Jesus so pleased with what Mary had done here? Look at, listen to these possibilities. Her motive was love. Love for the Savior. Love, in fact, is what makes our gifts and, and sacrifices so pleasing to God. It's, it's not the size of our gift. It's not the value of our gift. Like the widow's might was two pennies. That, that would impress Jesus, didn't it? Yeah? It's the motive behind the giving. It actually is the thought that counts, right? When our son Mark was very young, he used to collect ordinary rocks that he thought were unique or pretty for some reason, and he would give them to his mom, all proud and excited, and run up to mom, and uh, in his toddler language, told Sherry that he had found something wonderful for her. And Sherry would, would always say, oh, Mark, that's such a special gift, such a special rock. Thank you so much for thinking of me. And Mark would walk off all proud of himself, you know. What did you give her, David? <laughs> kind of nothing. You know? It was given out of love. Secondly, her, her gift, Mary's gift, sprang from the prompting of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin says this, Mary was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this duty to Christ. The Holy Spirit prompted Mary and she responded to that prompting and did it. The Holy Spirit led Mary to anoint Jesus. 
Mary may have died not knowing exactly why she did it other than her love for Christ, but the Holy Spirit prompted her and she obeyed. We read in verse 8 that Jesus said she inadvertently was preparing him for burial. And of course, in those days, they would prepare a body for burial by anointing the body with oil. Her loving sacrificial gift to Jesus has been an example to us Christians down through the centuries, hasn't it? You want to see a sacrificial gift? Look what Mary did. So there's nothing we can learn too valuable to give to Christ. There's no material thing that's of too much value that we couldn't offer that to Christ. There's no personal goals or dreams that are too valuable to give up for Christ. Even releasing your grip on your family, your children, your spouses, isn't too much to give up for Christ. Evidently. You remember Abraham had this same conflict. And he decided that his own son Isaac, his only son Isaac, wasn't too much to give up for Christ. But many times we ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit to sacrificially give because of common sense would deny it. That makes no sense. You shouldn't do that. It wouldn't be prudent to give such a great gift like that. That could come back to bite you. Have you talked about, to, about this with your financial planner? We foolishly believe that we can take better care of our families than God can. Here is something we can learn from this story. Have there been things that the Holy Spirit has prompted you to do or prompted you to give and you walked away without doing so? The answer is yes, because we've all done that, isn't it? Yeah. Have you ignored the prompting to call someone, to write someone a letter, to give someone a gift, to invite someone to dinner or to church? You just ignored the prompting? How do you know that wasn't the Holy Spirit? Mary didn't ignore it. She picked up her $40,000 bottle and broke it and dumped that expensive nard on Jesus' feet. Next we see that Mary's act of worship and love was done without considering the practicality of it. She just took something very valuable and gave it to Jesus without thinking too much about it. What, what she did was practical? Absolutely not. Some would say it was stupid. Was it smart? Well, we, initially we'd say no, but maybe thinking about it a little bit more as Christians, we might say, well, it probably was pretty smart. She was obeying the prompting of the Spirit, right? You never want to resist the promptings of the Holy Spirit, so it probably was smart. But from a worldly perspective, it was not smart. She could have used that for her retirement. For her kids, for her housing needs, for her friends, her neighbors, her families. 40,000 bucks was a big deal in that day, as it is today. <laughs> but we see here that Jesus was all that filled Mary's mind and heart. What Mary did for Jesus was in reality done for others also, though, wasn't it? Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 37 through 40, that doing for others is also doing for him. 
And conversely, doing for Jesus is seen in doing for others. In other words, the way we serve Jesus is by serving others. There's no other way to serve Jesus these days, is there? He's not around to pour oil on. But we can do the same act of love and service towards one another, can't we? That's what we're called to do. So just as Sherry has a collection of ordinary rocks, Jesus has a collection of ordinary things, like two pennies from a poor widow, like a cup of water for a woman who offered that on his way to Calvary, for a broken vase, maybe even some rocks, who knows. So what has Jesus stored in his collection that's from you? friend. What loving and sacrificial gift have you given to the one you call Savior? So Mark wants us to consider these responses to Jesus. He's presented us the the proof of Jesus' identity. Now he wants us to consider the possible responses. Hatred, Betrayal or worship? And in case you're still unconvinced of the identity of Christ, Mark continues in this chapter by cementing the identity of Jesus. For all those still questioning his identity, for all those who may not be yet convinced, Mark reviews some of the things he's already taught. First of all, he cements the identity of Jesus with with displays of his sovereignty. Look here at verses 12 through 31. Verses 12 through 16, we see Jesus doing some amazing things by predicting who's going to show up when he sends his disciples into town to prepare for the Passover meal. This is stunning. Sent two disciples, said, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. It's like me saying to one of you, hey, uh, I need something at Home Depot. There's gonna, when you get there, there's going to be a guy with a Stanley tool on his belt. And you follow him to the aisle he goes to. And then there'll be a guy there with a red hat on. You want to follow him to the, the right location in that aisle. And right there in front of you will be the thing I need. If I pulled that off, you'd be at church next Sunday. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> a display of sovereignty. There's no mistake. Who does that kind of stuff? Here's the answer. God <laughs> does that kind of stuff all the time. And part of this first display of sovereignty includes the prediction of Judas's betrayal during the meal. In verses 17 through 21, As they were the evening, he came to the twelve and they were reclining. He said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me who's eating with me. How did he know that? He's God. Mark is cementing the identity of Jesus for us in case you aren't convinced. By displays of his sovereignty, preparing the Passover meal, predicting Judas' betrayal, and then in verses 22 through 25, fulfilling the plan of redemption. 
He's actually going to fulfill all the things that he planned before the ages began, before the world was created. We see this in verses 22 through 25 as he reviews the old and new covenant. Look at these verses. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant. Blood of what covenant? The new covenant we read in Matthew versus the old covenant that was given through Moses and Abraham. It's been poured out for many. This was planned before the ages began, before any human ever took one breath. This was planned, and now Jesus is fulfilling it right in front of us. You still doubt that he's sovereign? <laughs> you still doubt that he's God? Read more closely. And then, of course, verses 26 through 31, the denial of Peter. Foretelling the denial of Peter. You're going to betray me. In fact, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to betray me three times. That's pretty detailed. Now, let, let me springboard off of this and, and kind of take a, a little detour. I don't have time for a long detour. This is a short detour. Here on March 13th, we're going to baptize some people, Lord willing. And we've got a, I think a wonderful set of people to, to present to you and to the Lord for baptism. And in that baptism, you're going to hear us ask our candidate, baptism candidates about their interest in faithfully following Jesus. But you need to know, and that's why I'm telling you now, baptism, baptism isn't about making presumptuous promises about future obedience, even though you regularly hear it, don't you? I'm going to follow Jesus until the end. Thanks, Peter. Next is what we might think. Although every true Christian has a desire to follow and obey Jesus, and you're not a Christian if you don't have that desire, baptism isn't about a pretentious promise for obedience. It's about confirming your profession of faith and witnessing God's visible sealing of his children in the waters of baptism. God is saying to us who are watching, she is mine. And saying the same thing to the person being baptized. You are mine. It's an identification with Christ as Savior and Lord. And so when Jesus predicted Peter's denial here in the verses in front of us, he knew that Peter's faith would fail. Remember, he's sovereign. He knew it. Which is why he said it. You're going to deny me before the, before the sun comes up. You're going to deny me. Three times. And by the way, Jesus, Jesus also knows that our faith will falter. Even though we make glowing promises in the baptism, or to one another at small groups, or even to ourselves, Jesus knows that we will fail. Our faith will falter. And so naive presumption that we can follow Jesus by our own will or our own power is an invitation to failure. This is why our question to our baptism candidates, and you'll hear this on the 19th, about future obedience includes the words, if God wills. 
right? With God's help. So it's important to keep in mind that, that Peter's failure was foreknown by Jesus. And it's also important to keep in mind that Peter isn't the only disciple here that fell away. Do you remember how many of the disciples walked with Christ into uh, Pilate's courthouse? Zero. They all ran, even though they all had promised not to. We all run, just like them. After we promised, after they had promised to stay true. The point that I want to make here, besides the fact that we are vulnerable to sin, is that Jesus knew that Peter and the rest of them would fall away. He predicted it. It's a display of his sovereignty. It's a, it's a revelation of his true identity. Are you still questioning? He's God. You have to respond some way now. So he, he, he does so with a demonstration of sovereignty, but Mark also records Christ with a demonstration of his pain. Look at verses 32 through 42, the story of Jesus in Gethsemane, that woeful night of unbelievable pain. Gethsemane, of course, means oil press. Scholars believe that the Garden of Gethsemane was owned by a wealthy acquaintance of Jesus who allowed Jesus to use the place for times of teaching, times of prayer, whatever. And so Jesus had free access, and he went, came and went from this beautiful garden uh, there on the Mount of Olives, and he took his disciples with him on this night. You notice here in verse 33 that Mark used the word to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. This has the idea of astonishment, shock, terror, is what these words mean. Jesus knew the cross of Calvary was closing in on him. He knew all that was entailed. He had planned it, remember, before time began. He actually created the wood upon which he would be crucified. This was the cup that he speaks of here. Remove this cup from me, verse 36. This was the cup that he was looking into on this woeful night. Peter, James, and John were there to witness with their own eyes the anguish of Jesus' soul. They heard Jesus say, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death, verse 34. They saw him fall to his knees, and then we see in other um, accounts in the Gospels, falling from his knees to his face, prostrate, face down, on the ground, body convulsing in emotional and physical agony. They witnessed it, and they wrote about it. Jesus asked God the Father for another possible way, and by the way, this wasn't a whispered prayer. It says in Hebrews 5 and 7 that these were loud cries with flowing streams of tears. He was wailing. Jesus was overcome with horror for multiple reasons. He fully understood, of course, the intense pain that he would suffer. He also understood the spiritual pain and separation from his heavenly father that was required to take place in order to take on sin, your sin, mine. 
And yet, he submitted himself to the will of God, his Father. He knew he must suffer, he must die. And so he, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, had planned before the creation of the world that the only solution to the chaos of sin would be God in human flesh suffering and dying in your place. Instead of you. He must take the cup. If we are to experience salvation. It was a cup full of sin. When Jesus looked into the cup, he saw all the consequences of sin, all the child abuse, all the murders, all the broken relationships, all the hurting people. He saw all the diseases, the deformation, the despair brought on by sin. He saw it all. He also saw a cup full of God's wrath against sin. It says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin. God made the son sin. He wasn't a sinner, he took on sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How? Through his suffering and pain and death, paying the penalty that we owe. So when Jesus gazed into this impending painful cup, he looked into hell, really, and saw the eternal consequences of sin. This view staggered him. In fact, Isaiah chapter 51 calls it a cup of staggering. It was so grotesque, so painful, it made him stagger and fall to the ground. Even though the cup of suffering was a suffocating cup, and it was suffocating Jesus, he, it says in verse 36, not my will, but your will. John 6, 38 Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, wait a minute. Jesus answered his prayers? Yes, he did. How so? Well, you'll have to come back to the time we dig into this more deeply to find out. Jesus' prayers were answered. <clears throat> and then we see that finally, from verses 43 through, or 37 really, through 42, um, Jesus demonstrated this, his identity, by his preparation of his disciples. Who else would take the time to prepare those who would be left to carry on the mantle of his ministry would do and say what he did here in these verses. <clears throat> and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Simon Peter, you still sleep, could you not watch? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Walked away and prayed again, came back there sleeping again, did it again, came back there sleeping again. So we get a keen insight here into the true identity of Jesus by seeing his deep concern for the preparation of his disciples who were going to take the message of the kingdom into the months, years, and centuries to come. He wanted to make sure that the message of the gospel of God would continue into the future through these 11 men who were with him that night in Gethsemane, 
who were following him throughout his ministry career, Jesus was preparing them for a challenging prospect of leading a worldwide movement of God's church. And their impending failure later that night needed to be prepared for. Jesus was laying the groundwork for their restoration here in this text, knowing they would fail. He was laying the groundwork for them to be handled the opposition they would be facing in the days to come, months and years to come, really. And what did Jesus say? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. He wanted them to know that following him was going to be a fight. It's not like come to Jesus and you'll have a great life. It's come to Jesus and be challenged. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Watch so that you don't fall into temptation. We know, of course, the biggest enemy of God's people is temptation and sin. And yet these guys couldn't stay awake. They couldn't keep their prayers going for more than an hour. And so we must learn with these first 11 disciples that we must be prepared for the onslaught of the enemy. We are in a battle just like they were. The, the kingdom of God, the plan of God continues. Now it's on our shoulders, isn't it? Who would do such a thing to prepare all those who would follow him for such things? God would. We're going to face spiritual opposition daily in the Christian life. We must be people who are committed to prayer, who are committed to watching and being alert to the enemy's schemes. It's the same call to us. We must realize that without Jesus, we're nothing. We will fall just like they did, and yet we need to get up and return, run back to Jesus. Friends, I know that was uh, a quick run through these verses, and there's a lot more there that we're going to unpack, but uh, that'll be a later date. What I want you to do now, if you wouldn't mind, is begin to prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper. We're going to um, serve you up front like is our practice, um, but I want you to consider, you know, as you, cons as you think about your relationship with God, how have you responded to Jesus? You know, and, and try not to fool yourselves in this moment, because it's really between you and God. Be honest with him, do business with him, and examine your heart as you prepare to take the elements that represent the Passover lamb, his broken body and spilt blood. And then consider whether or not you are watching and praying. And so there inevitably is an opportunity for confession, isn't there, on the way here, on the way up to receive these elements that are designed to restore and nourish you weary pilgrims? That's what this is for. It's for people who follow Christ and who become weary. It's to remind you of all the good things that he's done for you. It's to nourish your soul. And so if you know Christ, if you've embraced him, if you have, if you have responded to him in worship, then you are invited. If you have not yet done that, you need to 
be honest with yourself and stay in your seat or come to Christ. And as you come to Christ, walk this aisle up front and receive your first legitimate communion. That would be a wonderful blessing to us to be participants in that. So elders, if you will come at this time, I'm going to read as you come the words of institution, Paul's explanation of these elements that we're going to serve you here in a moment. And we're going to serve you and then ask you to just turn, come down the center aisle and turn down the outside aisles and go back to your seat and take the elements whenever you're personally ready to take them. Okay? And then we'll sing a song and, and then greet one another. But listen to these words here of Paul to the Corinthian church. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's thank God for these things. Father, we come to you with overflowing hearts of thanksgiving. We want to be like Mary who responds to you, our God and Savior, with joyful, loving, sacrificial worship. This is what we want. Holy Spirit, conform our hearts to Jesus' heart. Help us be like him. Father, we run to him now, Jesus, who is pictured in these elements of the broken bread and juice, the broken body and spilt blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, knowing that this is the only solution for our lives, the only solution to our chaos, the only solution to our sin, the only way to heaven. So we come running joyfully, thankfully, with much anticipation of meeting you here. Thank you for these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.